This episode of Attention Talk Radio is brought to you by children and adults with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Welcome to Attention Talk Radio, your ADHD information station where we help those with ADHD pay attention to attention. With your host, ADHD and attention coach, Jeff Topper. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to this edition of Attention Talk Radio. I'm your host, ADHD and attention coach, Jeff Copper. Our topic, why ADHD college students don't want help. Uh, We're going to get to the content in a moment. Before we do, we'd like to thank children and adults with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder for bringing this program to you. In celebration of that event, we're anxious to give away free digital copies of Attention Magazine. To get yours, just listen to our show. We'll be sharing a secret word a couple times. Write it down. Listen to another show. Um, and write down the secret word of that show, and then just email me just the two words. That's all you need to do. Email address is attention at attentiontalkradio.com. When we get it, we'll forward it to Chad. We'll get you a PDF copy of the current edition of Attention Magazine, and they'll send you a PDF copy of the next edition when it's in print. We have a little tip that we're going to share with you that Chad made, and we'll get into the show. You've heard it from organization experts and others. If you want to get things done, you need to keep to-do lists. If all the things you need or want to accomplish keep you up at night, you might think about spending five or ten minutes before bed writing down your list for the following day. Some people prefer to start their day by creating a list. Choose whichever works best for you. To learn more about time management and ADHD, visit chad.org. Thank you so much, Chad, for your continued support. For those that are not aware, Chad is the largest not-for-profit organization that advocates on behalf of those with ADHD. We encourage all of our listeners to either donate or become members to support Chad. Financial stability is really important for them to have the resources to have people lobbying uh, on Capitol Hill for the ADHD community and working with different regulatory agencies on wording to make sure that uh, those with ADHD get the accommodations that they need in order to thrive. Again, for more information, to donate or to uh, become a member, go to chadd.org. So a lot of times we're looking for useful information out there in the world of ADHD, and sometimes just just brutal truths are really, really helpful. Uh, I did an interview many years ago with uh, Teresa Maitland that, um, about some research and some situations that really was helpful for me and basically understanding uh, kind of how to pick clients and particularly in and, and and do things somewhat efficiently. This interview is being released now. It was, it was done some years ago, but it helps give us some insight on why college students really don't necessarily want help. Uh, it doesn't solve a lot of problems, but sometimes validating the reality of the situation helps people understand what uh, what, what they're working with. So with that, we'll roll the tape. And with us in our uh, virtual studio is uh, Dr. Teresa Maitland. Our topic tonight actually was actually kind of derived by an uh, interview that I'd done with Teresa uh, preparing teens with ADHD and LD for college. And I was a little shocked at some research that she uh, revealed. And we're going to talk about that tonight, and we're going to talk about a, a couple other things. Again, we're here with uh, Dr. Teresa Maitland. She's an ADHD and LD specialist and coach in the Academic Success Program for Students with LD and ADHD a program in the Learning Center at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. In her private practice, Dr. Maitland specializes in preparing individuals with ADHD and LD for success in life after high school and college. She's also the co-author of Coaching College Students with ADHD, and she co-wrote this with Dr. Patricia Quinn and Nancy Rady, both both of whom we've had on our show. She and Dr. Quinn also co-authored two national parenting publication award-winning books, Ready for Takeoff, 
and on your own, a college readiness guide for teens with ADHD and LD, and coaching college students with ADHD, issues and answers. Dr. Maitland also has a private practice in which she functions as a professional coach and consultant specializing in teens and adults with learning, attention, and emotional challenges. She's the co-chair of the Professional Advisory Board of CHAD and a regular contributor to Attitude Magazine. And with that, Teresa, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's so nice to be here. I did want to mention uh, two things. One is I'm no longer the co-chair of of CHAD. I am on the Professional Advisory Board, but I am going to be at CHAD. So if any of the listeners are coming, I'm doing a session Friday afternoon um, on one of the studies I did about the graduation rates of college students with LD and ADHD. So I'd love to meet people if they can join me. You don't know what time your presentation is, do you? At 4.30 on Friday afternoon. I'm I'm on at 1.30, so I can get done with that and come check you out. <laughs> this is a great topic. I'll come you. All right. Um, so, so, Teresa, this is – I was shocked. We were doing a show the end of July about, you know, teens getting ready, and you cited some research with regard to um, students going into college participating in services because my son um, – recently started at the University of Florida, and a year ago we were traveling the southeast looking at schools, and one of the things that was fascinating to me in all the marketing stuff of, of like Alabama and Auburn and Georgia, Georgia Tech, Florida, Florida State, was the graduation, I mean the, the retention rates, the number of students, the percentage of students that returned the following year, and I thought that was interesting, and it really made a lot of sense as a parent because I wanted, I, I wanted that place where, that could help my son uh, grow and make this transition for success, and I was like, okay, this really makes a lot of sense. Then I heard your statistics, and it blew me away. So can you tell me a little bit about, well, can you talk about that research so that we can give our listeners a feel for for what this looks like? Yes, and I would encourage people, they can they can actually go to the uh, website. I'm going to mention there's been a, a, a large-scale study that the government has done following col- uh, individuals with disabilities after they've left high school to find out what happened to them. And this study is called the National Longitudinal Transition Study 2, and the most recent report was published in 2011 when they, um, the researchers checked in with the, these large numbers of students eight years after they left high school to see what had happened to them, and they looked at which ones, what percent go to college, um, what percent didn't, and uh, what has happened. And although they're studying students with all disabilities, we know for a fact that co- that individuals with LD and ADHD make up the largest segment of the disabled population in the public schools as well as in colleges. Um, some of their data does break down by ADHD and LD, but a lot of it's looked at at a large uh, as all disabilities. So the part that I shared with you was there's um, a a chapter that looks at the post-secondary experiences of students with disabilities, and they actually tracked these students to, before they went to college, um, once they were admitted, they asked them, do you perceive yourself as disabled, Um, yes or no? And what we discovered was a very small percent, only 8% actually before they started college, and they had been accepted, perceived themselves as disabled, and only, um, I think it's only 4% actually at, at the time of getting accepted um, actually let their college know they had a disability. And then they checked in later with these students, and I don't have the exact timeline, but I think it's after the first semester or maybe even after the first year, they checked in to find out of the students who went to college, and let me just clarify again, these are all students 
who were served in the public schools with an IEP or a 504 plan. So they had been identified as having a disability. Uh -huh. um, so they checked in with those students to find out what percent of them actually um, followed through and, and, and uh, disclosed their disability at the college level. And the number was shocking to me and to you, right? Only 28% yeah, of the students who had, they were identified in high school and had IEPs and uh, something like 83% of them had accommodations in high school. Only 28% actually registered with the college disability offices, and out of that group, only 19% only 19% uh, of those people used the accommodations. So a very small number are letting the colleges know, and a very small number are actually then following through. So that led you on a path, right, of investigation yeah. of what the it, heck. It, it, is yeah, the, the, I mean, the idea here is everybody wants these these people to be successful, and they're providing these resources, but if they're not taking it, as I like to say, if the obvious solution isn't working, then we're paying attention to the wrong thing, and I think the current system is not working because the take rate is so low. Now, it's funny, not, not funny, but when I was coming through high school, I was fortunate enough to get a swimming scholarship, and when I went off to college, it was Indiana, they had a. They wanted everybody to graduate. It was a really big deal, and so I, I could. I had access to unlimited tutoring. You know, I was actually proud. I think my sophomore year, I had the highest tutoring bill um, on campus of all the athletes. And I'm like, why would I want to do this the hard way? I can have somebody personally that I can ask questions to. I kind of embraced at the time. It wasn't like I had a dyslexia. A coach and I did disability services. It was through the athletic department, and I, again, I, I thought it was this is great. This is this is making life a lot easier for me, and so that was my experience. But this is not the experience of the mainstream people here, and it just blows me away that that the take rate is so low. And I just I'm a little bit of, of awe and thinking we need to start a conversation because we need to do something about this because. The parents want them to be successful. The college wants them to be successful. The teachers want them to be successful. But if they're not taking it, there's a disconnect here. Well, you're so right. And I think the, study, the few studies that have been done that have looked at the graduation rates of students with ADHD and LD, um, what they're showing is very concerning that they have, um, although some of them do graduate within a four-year period and do quite well, um, on average they are at great risk for not graduating at all or for taking much longer to graduate. Um, and what we're seeing is some studies, there's a couple of them, and, and the one I did showed this as well, the, more, the higher frequency of use of services, not accommodations but services, um, actually correlated with graduation rates. And in some studies, if, if the students used learning center services and learning supports or coaches, they actually graduated at the same rate as their peers. So you're right, we're in this catch-22 where um, we're excited that they're coming to college, where all those of us who have been in the field are really thrilled that so many are going to college. But like you said, if there's a resource, uh, if the resources aren't the formal ones, right, the disability offices yep. Yep. are not working, What's going wrong, and what do we have to do before they come to college and while they're in college to change it so that they can be successful? Absolutely. I, I want to run to a break. Uh, when we come back, everybody, in preparation for this, I, we, I sent emails out to uh, 
a bunch of experts in the field, like uh, Dr. Quinn, Ari Tuckman, Dr. David Now, Dr. Kirsten Milliken, Rob Tedisco, Jody Sleeper Triplett. These are all people that work specifically in this area and kind of deal with it. And we asked them two questions in relationship. Are you shocked by the findings of this report? And what are your hypotheses around why the numbers are what they are? And we come back from break. I want to kind of just, you know, Teresa, we'll go through and share that with people, what other people's perspective is. And then at the end of the show, we'll actually talk about thoughts about what we need to do. Um, before we go to break real quickly, Teresa, if somebody wants to get in contact with you or learn more, what's the best way to do that? Uh, my email is uh, drtmaitland, drtmaitland at gmail.com. And with that, we'll be right back after these messages. Our secret word tonight is want. Your life, your world, your choice. This is Attention Talk Radio. Are you always late? The Time Timer is an award-winning time management solution that's helped millions of people with ADHD manage life better. As time passes, Time Timer's bright red disc disappears. Visit Timetimer.com and use the discount code ATR for 15% off. Transform lives as a professionally trained ADHD coach at the ADD Coach Academy. ADHD coaching is in demand, a calling, and a career. Learn how you can change lives by going to addca.com slash ATR. That's addca.com slash ATR. Managing ADHD is about pausing before you ponder and proceed. This opportunity to practice pausing is being brought to you by digcoaching.com. And now, back to Attention Talk Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to this edition of Attention Talk Radio. We're here with Dr. Teresa Maitland, and we're having a great conversation, actually trying to start a national conversation about uh, helping uh, ADHD students and LD students, for that matter, um, Get some get some help so that, that we can ensure some success because I don't for me based off the numbers the current uh, paradigm just isn't working. Um, before the break, um, Teresa, we released your your email address. But if anybody wants to get uh, buy one of your books, is Amazon the best place to go to, or is there another website? Well, Amazon definitely has them, but since they're published through the American Psychological Association (APA), they're on their website as well. So we can go there. Uh, another thing I want to do before we kind of jump into the responses is, is I'd like to take a moment and really thank so much the Edge Foundation for their support of Attention Talk Radio um, over, the, over the last couple of years. Uh, this show is near and dear to their heart. Uh, as you heard in our commercials, is that we're trying to raise the awareness that you know ADHD coaching does cost some money, but it's actually really to protect your investment because my philosophy is this. If, you're, if you pay twenty. $30,000 a year for two or three years for your student to go to college and they don't graduate, that's lost money because it's kind of like, did you get the diploma or did you not? And so sometimes it's like protect your investments, a little insurance policy by doing that, and hence the, the ads and the commercials. And the Edge Foundation is a not-for-profit organization, and they actually have paired up with Shire Pharmaceutical to provide scholarships for some students to get a, a year's free ADHD coaching when they go to college because they're dedicated to helping those, those people. So, again, I just really wanted to, to thank them for their dedication and what they do. Um, so let's get into this, uh, uh, Dr. Maitland. Um, let's, let's start with Dr. Quinn's. You know, it was interesting because she said she was shocked but not surprised at the numbers. And... Uh, her hypothesis were uh, why the numbers were what they were is that the students really never owned their diagnosis or prognosis. They never attended um, or were involved in their IEP or 504 programs. 
And she also talks about they didn't really understand their diagnosis, and they all seemed to want to start with a clean slate. What do you think of that? Well, you know, I think that's so true. I think that's one of the big issues. You know, what you were just talking about, how great the Edge Foundation is, and there are these wonderful coaching services available. And you and I were talking before this show, right, that working with teenagers is really challenging because many of them don't want the help. So I think one of the barriers and something that, Um, professionals and parents have to be thinking about is how do we slowly bring young people along from childhood to college so that they understand and value them their differences not be embarrassed about them right and Mm -hmm. and that they're involved all the way along not their parents because frequently the parents have come to be experts on the young person's disability how it impacts and what they need and the parents have come to acceptance the young person, because they have not been a part of the journey, they have almost been uh, moved around by the teachers and the parents. Years ago, there was a study on learned helplessness, and the man who did the study talked about what we do is we put people with learning and attentional disabilities on like a silver platter, and we move them around to special classes, but we don't engage them and help them understand, like, why are we testing you? What are the problems you're having? What did we learn? And do you agree with what we learned? And what do you want? And this could start in first, if it doesn't start in first grade, or second grade, or third, or middle school, we can't start overnight in uh, 12th grade for them to understand themselves, accept that there is a difference. The difference isn't bad. It can actually be a gift. But if it's not managed, it can get in the way. So I've met many students who sit in this office and say to me, I think this isn't real. My parents and the doctor made it up. And they almost have to go through their own uh, journey to hit a brick wall to come back and say, you know what, my brain really is different. I really yep. do need other interventions. So I Absolutely. think is really, it's not the only factor, but it's a pivotal factor because even if we change the services at the college level and we make them more easily accessible, as we're trying to do at UNC, if the young person won't access services, we're all losing. And, and yep. Jeff, my perspective is I think it's part of a bigger problem in our society because even the young people who don't have disabilities, I discover there's an attitude that using resources is viewed as a sign of weakness in in young people, even the high-achieving people who we could help by teaching them more efficient study strategies. they Either they have no experience using resources or they've picked up an attitude that that's only for losers. And what we're trying to do on our campus is to have the attitude be successful students use resources. It's a sign of strength. So I think our young people with LD and ADHD are part of a subset of young people who have been raised uh, in a system that only showed resources as an issue for people with problems. Do you follow my thinking? So there's a negative attitude in general in society about getting help and using resources. It's it's fascinating. Towards the end of the show, we interviewed uh, Neil Peterson, and it's fascinating because he talks about how how boards are mandating that many CEOs have coaches that they kind of get those helps because of that. So we'll talk a little bit more about that in, in a minute. But I, I think that you bring up some really good points, and we we actually asked uh, Dr. Kirsten Milliken. Um, who is a psychologist and uh, an ADHD coach and is, is uh, sometimes a, a co-host of mine on our show, and her comments were that they that she's not shocked by the numbers, but she, she her perspective is many of these students learned how to survive in high school and don't realize the additional demands. 
So they found some coping mechanisms to kind of get by it, and they go in and, and they don't go after those numbers because they think those mechanisms can continue, but they get kind of overwhelmed, and um, they now see them as adults and think that they, as she said, they have to suck it up. And relying on accommodations is for babies, which is kind of follows what your comments were um, a second ago with regard to this. And um, they confused accommodations uh, with 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 uh, not being good enough as opposed to there. And so I, I just find this fascinating because I think I think what she lists here makes a lot of sense to me. In as much as is that. They found a way to get by. They go in. They want the slate clean. They think they can do this, and that's again. They run into a brick wall when when everything's different. Well, I think that it's interesting because both um, Dr. Milliken and Dr. Quinn are bringing up different aspects of the students' attitudes and how they can be barriers. Right? Pat, mm-hmm. Patricia Quinn is saying that they may not have self-awareness and self-acceptance. And Dr. Milliken is saying that then uh, even that there's a perception in them that it's not right for them to have accommodations or it's bad. And I certainly meet people who feel like they're getting an unfair advantage. Um, And they don't want to have that unfair advantage. They feel it's a crutch. Um, so I do think that now we're getting to another level of attitudes that um, it's very very different than, for example, somebody who, who wears glasses. And frequently I do this with students, right? If they're sitting here and they're wearing glasses and they're telling me I feel like I don't want have the right to have extended time, I'll say, well, take your glasses off. <laughs> Yep. Can you see me without your glasses? And they go, and they laugh at me, and they go, "Of course not." And I say, "What if, because your brain is different, it's the same thing with extended time? It's not an unfair advantage. It's giving you an equal playing field." So I think definitely Dr. Uh, Milliken is getting to some issues about attitudes yep. toward this extra yep. help. Yep. But I think what we're seeing it isn't just the accommodations they don't want. They don't want coaching either sometimes because yep. they yep. haven't come to acceptance. But yep. the accommodations. Can I just mention, I think it's more complicated if, if um, for a student to take testing accommodations at high school or at college, it's almost like they have to be willing to come out of the closet because typically they're not going to be in the classroom when the test happens and they have to, they have to deal with their peers saying, where were you? Yep. So I understand the resistance around testing accommodations because it is almost, it's a requirement that you can deal with the questions. Um, Dr. Milliken, I think somebody, someone also says it's really hard for them to handle this. It's a, they see it as a hassle because there's so many steps involved, and I think that's really true, too, that yep. when you have organizational and time management problems, it's really hard to learn the skills to access either an appointment with me or an accommodation. And all the paperwork that's involved with grabbing that and going and telling your teachers, and that's, an, that's a, a layer. I, later, Neil uh, Peterson will talk about some of that stuff in a little bit more detail about the friction, so it's, it's a, kind of amazing. So we've got two different perspectives. Now we also asked uh, Dr. David Nell what his thoughts were, and he talked about um, students might not have advocated for themselves, might not have attended their, uh, their, their IEP and 504 plans, they weren't involved in uh, fulfilling their prescriptions, which we kind of talked about, but he goes on to say what's fascinating is they describe obstacles such as indifference and unreturned phone calls, as and they don't persist. So there's this resistance, but as he talks about is even when that happens, if they go at it, they, they'll use almost anything as, well, I didn't get a return phone call or whatever, and they just kind of give up within that system. And I thought that was kind of fascinating um, uh, through that indifference. Your thoughts? 
Well, I do think he's bringing up that there's a whole host of self-advocacy skills that they've never practiced, but their parents have practiced, right? Uh-huh. And I think the only thing I differ with him about is he said we should start a couple years before college. I think this should start really in elementary school. Like I think if a young person comes home and has a question and they didn't understand something in school or that something went wrong, instead of the mother making the phone call or the father, we should be having the young person go with a parent, maybe as a support, to begin learning how to ask for that help or how to handle the question. So I do think he's talking about a whole host of skills. And you're right, when they meet a barrier, maybe because they really don't want the accommodation and they're not yet at acceptance, they'll use any excuse not to access it. Now, on the other hand, when I see people, once they're at the point, maybe they've hit that brick wall, they've been on probation, they've been ineligible, and they come back and they've come to really say, I really have a difference and I really need these things, then nothing's a barrier. It's interesting Mm -hmm. for me to see transformation when you're at acceptance, you'll go through the hassle of making the phone call and go talk to the professor because you know it will make a difference for you. But if you're at the other side of it, um, anything will be a smokescreen, right, for not following through. Which is interesting because that leads in that leads into our next one. Dr. Ari Tuckman chimed in on this too. And he's he he wasn't surprised and he talked about you know the wayward college student that shows up in his office um that actually didn't use support there. But one of the things that, that he, he makes a comment that I think is is is, is really uh, insightful is they don't realize that getting help is actually a sign of wisdom. Is yes. is that notion of, hey, it's out there actually that that is a is exercising or demonstrating a level of maturity, and they're trying to do that. And I just thought that was kind of a profound statement. Uh, Thoughts on that? Well, I think it's similar to what I said before. I think it's part of a pervasive uh, training that we have to do in the whole country on all of us, right, that it's really okay for anyone to use resources. It's like welcome to the human race. It's a sign of strength. And I think he's right that um, not just ADHD young people, but sometimes their parents don't want them to use the resources. And sometimes we hear guidance counselors at the high school level or even special ed teachers phasing kids out of programs because they think that that's not going to be helpful to them when they apply to college. So they're getting this attitude from others as well. It's not just that they were yep. developed developed it. Uh, we also asked Jody Sleeper Triplet uh, what her thoughts were. And Jody, uh, uh, she's a coach in herself, but she also uh, has a coaching called JST Coaching, which coaches uh, or trains coaches for the Ed Foundation, which we, we've been talking about. And uh, her response was that she's not shocked at all, um, and that you know. The young people that she's talked to, they don't want to accept or use accommodations, and she talks talks a lot about uh, the stigma and not wanting to be labeled and confusion, actual confusion on how to go after uh, to find accommodations. Which some of the other comments have t- talked about that, but because they because of the stigma and the label, they want to kind of pretend like everything's okay, and so they just kind of they, they just kind of go its course. So this is different because she's actually talking much more about the stigma side of it as a reason not to do it. Thoughts? Well, I, I think she's hitting a lot of really important things. That, um, And I have to trust some of my students tell me there there are attitudes that they're picking up, right, from professors. Yep. Uh, if in professional schools, there's there's like a, a real concern in law school, med school, nursing school, right? So yep. um, I think that speaks to the need for us to do, like, training 
right, yep. to help people understand this population and understand the discriminatory attitudes that might be out there. So I think that um, I'm not the one living out there trying to get the accommodations. So when I hear a student um, consistently say from a certain uh segment of our population that they're picking up vibes that they may be treated differently if they get the accommodation. Sometimes I think it's the student, but when I hear that over and over in the same setting, from the same setting, then I I, I think we have misunderstanding. And a lot of, um, you know, New York Times articles, and uh, yep, they rarely yep. tell the story. They rarely tell the story of the person who's really helped by medication or helped by accommodations. And I think with Jody's out about the confusion and, and the process. So the way it works here at UNC, my office does not administer the accommodations. There's another office that we work very closely with that does. But what we're available to do is to coach the young person to learn how to implement their accommodation. That office, the accommodations office, does not have staff to do the coaching. We do. Mm-hmm. So it takes a lot of skill to learn how do you notify your professor and when and how are you going to keep track of their deadlines, the deadlines they have to register for an exam three business days before a test. Um, These are all real-world expectations that someday these young people will face, but this is the first time they have to learn it. So if there's not a place like ours to help really teach you how to keep track. You know, the one thing I'm thinking we're not talking about that we need to face is sometimes the accommodations don't help. And sometimes people don't want them because they don't do anything for them. I, I've had peppered through lots of other shows with Dr. Jeffrey Katz and Rob Tedisco and some other people is that notion of when you go get help, if you don't understand your own individual ADD or your own individual disability, what they tend to do is throw at you the top ten list of generic accommodations. And sitting in a class, does, in the front of the class, doesn't work for everybody. And I, th- I think that you're, you're, you're really speaking to something that's important here because, you know, throwing that list of generic, con- that top ten list doesn't always work for everybody. And if you go and you do all that work and you get these accommodations and you don't know more specifically what you need and they don't work, it really, really exacerbates the problem because you're, you're spinning your wheels and you're, you're, you're getting all this heaviness and you're not getting anywhere. So, well, very, very good point. Well, let me say, after my first couple years of being at a college level, I began to realize that I feel in a way our government went in the wrong direction, that instead of mandating accommodations, we should have mandated individual support. Because, for example, if you get extended time or audio books or a note taker and you don't have time management skills to help you prepare for that test, and study effectively, you could have all the time in the world. Now, there are definitely some people that their processing speed is so slow that extended time is dramatic for them. But many times it's not enough that you really need to know. If you get notes from a note taker but you wait till the night before the test because you don't have good time management skills, right, that doesn't do any good. So I think that uh, for many people, they're they don't see that as their answer. More time for some people is a, is like a death sentence. They'll fill mm-hmm. all the time. Um, so I think we're also focusing on some, maybe one of the reasons they're not, um, not everybody wants to register is they don't see that as what they need. Um, I know that there's many reasons, right? But yep. I do wonder if we've gone in the wrong direction. Um, by not having, man- colleges are not mandated to have coaching or learning specialists. And I'm lucky to be at one that does. But I think what I learn is that there's so many skills 
and, and so many new things you have to learn to be successful at college, all those accommodations will rarely help um, as the – they're not the magic. Uh, for yep. some people, I will say they are, but uh, for many people, they're not enough. So I want to, the last person I want to weave in some comments before we go to break, and then we'll come back and we'll start talking about what our thoughts are, is Rob Tedisco. Uh, Rob Tedisco used to used to be the executive director of the Edge Foundation and is now off doing a thing that's very valuable, uh, dealing with the, the justice system in ADHD, which is totally awesome. But he 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 reiterated a lot of what we've already talked about, but a few things that he said I, I want to bring up. Number one, and he, he, he's, he's, he said this before on some of our other shows, is that secrecy breeds shame. And there's a lot of people out there who don't want to talk about ADHD, and that breeds shame, which that, that, that amplifies a person's perception of stigma and labels and all this kind of stuff, which makes it a little bit more dear. So I think that that actually can be a barrier. But his one of his thing is is the cool part about getting a coach, and clearly I'm a coach, and I ask questions on the show from a coach's perspective. But I think he makes a good point by getting a coach for student. It enable it 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 helps the student without having to go on record that they have ADHD or learning disability. And I thought that was really kind of a profound statement because if if there's if this if everything's wrapped up in disability services and like you're disabled and there's a stigma and there's a label and it's accommodations and you know help is kind of for suckers if you go kind of to that coaching model number 1 name a professional athlete that doesn't have a coach tiger they all do because a coach can help them help them achieve what they're capable of and that way you also can actually do this without going on record which I thought was kind of just a, a, a interesting perspective. We'll talk a little bit more about that after break. But but those two things, those two comments, really stand out to me. Uh, Teresa, you want to share your thoughts? Well, I think the secrecy. I think, as I said to you, I think we have to start at as soon as someone's diagnosed, we need to help them accept and talk about their differences and help them know that different isn't bad, right? And I think many mm-hmm. families don't want the young person to know um, and get the information from the evaluation because they don't want them to feel different. Well, they are different, but different isn't bad. And if we can get that secrecy out of the picture, I think Rob is really right because then there's shame, like what's wrong with me? Um, and definitely the idea of we can talk after the break, but where we're moving as a, as a learning center is we're offering our services to everybody, and I think that's the way we have to go is that you don't have to go yep. on record and just get help. So I'm, I'm right with you. Absolutely. Everybody, we're going to go to break real quick. If you want to get in contact with Dr. Maitland, her email is drtmaitland at gmail.com, and with that we'll be right back after these messages. Our secret word is want. You're listening to Attention Talk Radio. We'll return in a moment. Your life, your world, your choice. This is Attention Talk Radio. Change your life by learning more about managing ADHD. Other places give you a few tips. The ADD Coach Academy will change your life. To find out more, go to addca.com ATR. That's addca.com slash ATR. Are you always late? The Time Timer is an award-winning time management solution that's helped millions of people with ADHD manage life better. As time passes, Time Timer's bright red disc disappears. Visit timetimer.com and use the discount code ATR for 15% off. Could hiring an attention coach really help you move forward? (laughs) 
Does a child get wet when they dive into a swimming pool? You can get started moving forward today. Just call Dig Coaching Practice at 813-837-8084 and schedule a free consultation. Tell us you heard about us on Attention Talk Radio and get 50% off your discovery session. For more information, visit digcoaching.com. Don't delay, do it today. And now, back to Attention Talk Radio. Welcome back, everybody. We're having a spectacular show with Dr. Maitland talking about ADHD college students who don't want help. Is a kind of a kind of like that's kind of interesting. Um, we've talked about research and what's kind of going on. We've we've shared the thoughts and views of many of the experts that we've had on the show that work uh, very closely with this this crowd. I think it's been very insightful, kind of unwrapping what's kind of going on. Now, what I'd like to do is kind of move to what we think. You know, what would be ideal? And in preparation for this, I, I pre-recorded an interview with uh, Neil Peterson. Again, he's the CEO of the Edge Foundation, who's dedicated to doing this, as is Teresa at the University of North Carolina, as is many other people at other other um, institutions. But I kind of want to roll this tape, and when we get when we get done with it, uh, Teresa, we kind of like to talk about your thoughts and uh, see where we go. So, with no further ado, let's roll it. Neil Peterson is the founder, chairman, and CEO of the Edge Foundation, a not-for-profit dedicated to helping at-risk students. Neil, welcome to the show. Oh, nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, well, it's a, a thrill to have you on. Um, you you have dedicated so much time and energy um, to the uh, the Edge Foundation to help uh, students in higher-level education kind of get the help that they need, particularly for those with ADHD. So I couldn't think of anything anybody better to really to kind of ask some of these questions on. I'd like to begin by asking you, can you give an overview from your perspective of the evolution of the accommodations for at-risk students and non-traditional learners with executive functioning challenges? Well, with the passage of the federal legislation, which was obviously very well intended and, and, and you know, most if not all universities and colleges uh, have responded and set up uh, disability services offices you know, where, uh, you know, a student with a diagnosis can come in and, and, um, and, and, and be uh, reviewed to determine whether or not certain accommodations make sense for them. I mean, that's all terrific in, in terms of its intention. However, um, the reality is, as you know, most, um, most of the colleges and schools that have this are not getting the kinds of participation from the number of students that could use this that they would that uh, that the students deserve or that they would like. That that's and that's exactly why we want to have you on the show because I I loved how you said it was really really well intended but we're not getting the results. In other words, those in need that we want to help are not reaching out for that help. From your perspective, why is that? Well, I think it's uh, it's a pretty simple answer. Uh, even though the colleges and universities are doing what the law requires, um, the reality is that it's very, very uh, tortuous and intimidating from the point of view of the uh, the student and their and their and their parents. Let me give you an example. My daughter Kelsey, when she went to college in New York City, first of all, we had to have her diagnosed. And just to do that is not a small deal. Uh, that mm-hmm. takes effort to find the right person to do it. It costs a not insignificant amount of money. Mm-hmm. So once that's done, then that has to be shipped in, sent in to the the disability services office at the institution your your, your child is going to. They mm-hmm. then, on their own, determine whether or not to accept the diagnosis. 
mm-hmm. which is kind of a black box, and you're sitting there waiting to determine whether or not it's going to be accepted. And then they, on their own, determine which of the many accommodations that they provide you and your di- your your daughter and her diagnosis will will uh, be eligible for and and then they they have you come in and sit down and they they tell you yes she's been accepted and you get the following two or three accommodations and then they give you a letter to that effect and this of course process takes quite a bit of time and then and then at that point um the student uh is on her own or his own to get, then go to their individual teachers and and show them the letter to get the accommodation in that particular class. Now this is I know we all talk about self advocacy and this you know um, this is a 17 year old first year college student, but that is very intimidating. And for somebody to go through that whole process, um, it's just uh, many kids won't do it. They just won't do it. And so what you're finding is that in schools where you know, they should be having, uh, if, a, if a school is, has 50,000 kids, by all rights, 5,000 of them have, for example, ADHD on an average, uh, 143 will actually have signed up for the accommodations. So th- there's a reason why that's occurring, and I think it's it's the, uh, the torturous nature of the review, the uh, self-advocacy required, and sort of the... Um, the uh, putting the kid in a position of um, uh, being a little um, overwhelmed, if you will, from day one on what's required. I, I love, absolutely love how you've described this. It was the stuff that's in place was well intended, but it's exceptionally intimidating. And as, as a kid going to college at 17, maybe 18, I mean, this is so intimidating and so torturous. It's no wonder why there's such such a small take rate. I mean, it it. it I mean, if you back up and really look at it, as you've described, at a, at a high level, I mean, I can totally understand why we're getting the outcomes. Now, I'm sure they looked at each step on the way and said, this is like no big deal, but collectively, it really makes a lot of sense. Um, let me well, ask you a question. Uh-huh. You, you want to make a comment? No, no, go ahead. Ideally, what do you think would be the, the goal to work towards, such that those with ADHD would actually get these services in a way that would be far less intimidating and um, be more positive? Well, to me, the answer is is pretty simple. I mean, let's face it, all of these kids that have to go through this have been accepted by the school. I mean, we're talking mm-hmm. about bright kids that got in. Yep. And, and, and then secondly, uh, the number one issue facing most, um, you know, uh, colleges and universities is completion, graduation. Mm-hmm. And, and, and given those two points... My attitude, or at least what I think should be the attitude of the uh, leaders at our universities and colleges, ought to be what can I do to make sure that that child, that student that I've already accepted, can be successful at my university, at my institution. And and as opposed to, you know, uh, thinking about, well, you know, who has the diagnosis and what accommodations will we give them, I'd start the other way around. I'd say every one of my kids, can be successful here or I wouldn't have accepted them and mm-hmm. what can I do to ensure that success so I would give I would uh, mandate myself not give I would mandate that every kid who started as a freshman at a uh, two or four year uh, college or university institution have a coach I would give them an executive coach until they prove to me that they don't need it 
rather than waiting for the kid to have trouble for the first six months, be put on probation and then is out of school after a year. I would give a kid coach from day one. That that's 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 such a paradigm shift, and you know. We've had a Neil, you and I getting ready for this had a conversation about being an advocate. I mean, you've described that, you know, CEOs, like boards mandate CEOs have coaches. Tiger Swing has got a, a golf swing coach. The idea is to help them maximize what they're capable of doing and in the in the higher education level, what you're describing really makes all the sense. You've got kids that are coming out of high school for the first time. They've got life skills, they've got study skills, they've got time management, all these things, and they have so many basically there for that transition with what you're describing really makes all the sense. So what am I hearing is everybody gets a coach until at some point in time they say that they can fly without it? Absolutely. I mean, it's from the point of view of the university and even thinking economically, it's almost like buying an insurance policy because uh, they don't get reimbursed from tuition for people to drop out. And they also don't get their credit, you know, in the ranking of the schools unless they've got high completion and, and graduation rates. And, uh, so it's, it's the number one agenda now at the four-year and two-year institutions, and this to me is a, a way of ensuring that and obviously would be particularly helpful to uh, kids that have challenges, executive functioning challenges like ADHD. I'm having my own little aha because you're describing I mean, everybody takes a look at the cost, but as you've described it, what's the cost to the university not to do this? Absolutely. I, I mean, mean, the cost, I don't ahead. know what their costs are to recruit per kid but it's got to be significant. And you sure know that their lost revenue for every kid that leaves is pretty significant. So, uh, you know, I haven't worked out the numbers exactly, but I've got to believe that this would be a cost-effective move on their part, not only financially, but more importantly in terms of getting their completion and graduation rates up to as close to 100% as possible. Not to mention all the processing requirements, because after all, if they're going to put you through this torturous process, somebody's got to go through, review all those documentations, there's got to be committee with all that kind of stuff. There's all that rigmarole that kind of goes with it. So if we can bypass that, it would certainly save it. And so, you know, Neil, I really appreciate you kind of coming on the show, because our goal here is really to illuminate the fact that the, the system was designed with good intentions, but the fact of the matter is very few are actually taking advantage of this. So I would argue it's not working the way it's supposed to in the in the, in the my real goal is to really begin to get the discussion going to say, listen, not, let's not just keep doing it the way we're supposed to because it's what's there. Let's invent something that really makes a lot of sense. And what you've proposed, you know, it, it, it logically, it, it makes total sense to me. And I, for all I know, if somebody did the analysis, it might make economic sense for the university. So, again, thank you so yeah. much for your comments. Well, let me add one more. I, I think we can also learn from our, our uh, secondary and, and uh and, and middle school education uh, experience, uh, we've, we've been providing coaches in, in really um, uh, poorly performing middle and high schools. Uh, and what we've learned from that is that um, that initially, you know, the, the thought on providing accommodations is it's kind of a, um, uh, almost like a label. It's uh in some cases, a stigma, and mm-hmm. um, and uh, it's something that you know many kids don't want to be a part of. They don't want to stand out that way. Mm-hmm. So what we've done in the middle school and high schools is we changed the paradigm on that, so that uh, any kid you don't have to have any diagnosis or anything. Any kid who wants to get a coach can get a coach, and and but we only have so many slots available for coaches. Okay, 
And so what's happened is it's become competitive among the kids to get a coach. I mean, you know, and it becomes something the kids seek. Uh-huh. Uh, how, how did you get a coach? Oh, man, I'd like to have a coach. And instead of being a negative or a um, something related to a disability, it becomes a, uh, wow, I have a coach. How, you wow. know, and, and it becomes it becomes something that people seek. And, and it's a as opposed to having any tinge of um, disability or accommodation or anything or labeling attached to it. It, it kind of goes back to the conversation is, is it's any kind of coach is helping you achieve what you, what, what you're capable of. And there's many people out there who, like I said, at the CEO level are doing that stuff. So it changes that paradigm from you're broken to no, this is something I really want because I want to excel. And I, I absolutely love that. So thank you for sharing your comments there. Well, you're welcome. And thanks for having me. Oh, our pleasure, and uh, uh, everybody, we hope you've enjoyed this conversation. I know I have found it very insightful, and so, Neil, thanks again for coming on the show. Um, my, my pleasure. Thank you. So, Teresa, I, I, I absolutely loved how he walked through the experience of his daughter and how intimidating and what's involved and in actually getting the accommodations. It really kind of blows me away. Even if I wanted to get the accommodations, there's so much friction to kind of get there. It's almost it's 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 disconcerting that it's there and, and a real obstacle. Um, and then I I really loved at the end the the hey we should we should provide coaches for everybody until they kind of prove that they don't need it to a certain extent. Uh, and I know that that what with what you're doing at the University of North Carolina, you're heavily involved in it because you're near and dear to this stuff. So can you talk about? Any comments on what he said, and also your thoughts on what we should be doing to shift the paradigm? Well, I really love what he says too. I think uh, it's what I, you know, what I was saying about accommodations. I, I'm concerned that we've put our energy in that as the solution, right? Because it doesn't seem like it is uh, for everyone. Certainly, maybe it is, you know, for people with physical disabilities. Some of those access accommodations solve everything, right? So if you're blind and you have Braille or if you can't get in a building, but when the brain is the disability, those kind of accommodations by themselves don't change everything. So I I love, um, first of all, I totally agree with Neil on many points. There's some things I think we should be doing before college, but I'll save that. Let's talk about at college. I think when I get a chance to speak at orientation in the summer when parents come with their teens for their couple days here, um, I meet parents not just of people with differences, but parents and teens of all entering freshmen. My My spiel is, Who in this room has ever had a transition challenge um, when you faced a new part of your life and you didn't have all the skills that you needed and all the parents raised their hand? Um, And none of the teens do because many times these high-achieving young people who get to college never really had a challenge yet, right? So I think the first thing is it's absolutely normal for any student to have a transition challenge at college. They've never been here. We've done very little to prepare them in high school. And no matter how smart they are, and even if they went to the best high school in the country, it's not college, even if it's a boarding school. So I think that his idea of normalizing having coaching and resources to everybody is really what I think has to happen. There is one program called Inside Track, and they do coaching 
um, for colleges, and they've done some studies, and they aren't focused on ADHD and LD. They've been focused more on at-risk people. And they've actually done what Neil talked about at some small colleges. They've done studies where they've broken up the freshman class, and half of the freshman class got coached 30 minutes a week, and the other half didn't. The half that did has higher retention rates, higher GPAs. Um, they follow those people over time, and the ones who had coaching have higher graduation rates. So there's some research out there showing that everybody at college could benefit for, from coaching. So I um, I think he's right. One of the things we're trying to do here, and there's not a big staff of us to do it, but we see the power of coaching. But coaching isn't the only thing people need, but the power of coaching um, we're doing coaching groups. We open them to anybody. They're not. Um, my dream would be to have coaching in all the freshman dorms, have coaching groups in all the fresh, freshman dorms, so all freshmen who are transitioning could set goals, create their dreams, make action plans. Um, that's sort of my dream, is to create a manual and train some peer coaches and get it institutionalized um, so that everybody, as they're adjusting, has a place and a time to talk about how are you handling your life. And all of a sudden, overnight, you have total freedom and total responsibility. What are your goals? How are you going to manage your time? What are the resources on campus? So um, I, think he's, I think there's – but I do think there are some broad resources that aren't in coaching – like for example, there's a there's a whole bunch of new learning and study skills that students need that aren't taught anywhere. Um, and I would my dream would be that in the college classes that there could actually be some study skill instruction woven into the college classes. Um, we have some really innovative professors here who have worked on their own and some have collaborated with us to actually integrate how to keep you know how to keep track of your test dates in this class, how are you going to study, um, really that could be in every class, like how do you study biology, right? Uh, how do you take notes in biology? So I think instead of us having all those services at a learning center where you have to come for an appointment, if we could innovatively integrate some of that into the actual course. And there is a big movement called Universal Design for Instruction, right, and it's coming out of the special education disability world saying that, you know, the, the classrooms own some of the problems that these students have. And when we only have two tests and you teach in a lecture for 75 minutes with just PowerPoints, that doesn't serve the needs. So really training professors to design classes that hit a broad range of learning differences and have multiple modalities for presentation, multiple means of testing them rather than two tests a semester. So there's a lot that needs to change that is uh, in the college setting. But I think we have to go to before college. Um, you know, the book Patty Quinn and I uh, wrote, the uh, Ready for Takeoff, we chose that metaphor for a reason. Um, I, I met a college student that I was coaching, and he and his mother were, they had sort of formed a relationship where he told me he outsourced his brain to her because he had executive functioning problems and ADHD. She was really good at planning. She did all the planning. She was tired of that when she brought him for coaching, and she really wanted him to start learning how to do his own planning, his own long-term assignments, make his own appointments. After about a month, he hadn't made any changes, and she was really frustrated. And we talked to him, and he said, really, my mother's the pilot. 
and she's so much better at this than I am with my ADHD. She can fly the plane. She sees the storms. And he said, I like sitting back here in coach watching a movie. Uh, We said to him that some point in the next couple years before he went to college, he had to go in the cockpit, and she was going to become the co-pilot. So I think that when you have children, and I never had the opportunity to have a child with ADHD but met hundreds of parents who have, they really do have executive functioning problems. And if you let go, they really don't learn from their mistakes. So parents are in a bind. Either you do all the thinking for them or you let go and they fail. And we think parents need a middle ground. They need to learn at young ages how do you co-pilot and start promoting executive functioning skills. At times, I know biologically it might not be possible, but my belief would be that at every age there's some skill that the parent is doing that they could begin coaching their teen to take it over or their child even to take it over, whether it's getting dressed in the morning, brushing your teeth, because so often the problem at the college level is the young person truly is literally thinking for themselves for the first time because they've had their parent either be a reminder, right, or a planner or a fixer of their problems. And we understand why parents do that. It's not that they're bad. They just don't know what else to do when you have somebody who can't think. So I I think in addition to what Neil's saying, I think we can't ignore that we need to give our parents a lot more uh, training and help, and we need to do some research to find what are the interventions that parents can use that promote executive functioning skills. Yep, yep. Um, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that kind of goes back to the process, you know, some of our experts had talked about, you know, the kids not being a part of the process, the IEP and understanding the diagnosis and getting there earlier and not just talking at the kids but working with the kids I think is really the key in getting them to college and um, and then shifting the paradigm when they're in college so that it's not this, this shameful label that you're kind of outcast on the other side but more changing the paradigm to say, hey, listen, everybody needs a coach to help them uh, fulfill what they're kind of capable of. And that kind of coaching paradigm is a great transition for for college. Um, Teresa, I need to I need to kind of wrap this up. Any final comments um, or thoughts? Well, I think this is a great opportunity for us to face the reality that we've got some serious problems in the post-secondary world with college students with ADHD. This, you know, I, I appreciate you being as passionate about this as I am because this, the college life makes or breaks somebody's future. Um, and I think we, we need to be parenting and teaching to this level of a person's life. And I appreciate us getting this out there so that people could start talking about it. We need to be doing a better job. And let me say, the students I meet who are successful, their schools and their families have done these things that we're talking about. They've been more deliberate. They've, they've faded their role. They involve the young person. So I know it's possible. We just need to do it more and more strategically. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on the show, Teresa. I'd like to thank Neil Peterson for his participation and all of our experts, uh, Dr. Quinn, Dr. Milliken, uh, Elaine Taylor-Kloss, uh, Ari Tuckman, uh, David Now, uh, Rob Tedisco, and more. So, again, Dr. Maitland, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Jeff. Take care, everybody. Catch us next week for another great edition of Attention Talk Radio.